0: Good morning, New Life. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, as Jim mentioned, uh, we had a bit of a successful outing for our first ever sports day, which is very exciting. We have a bunch of very uh, athletic people uh, in our congregation, apparently. And so, uh, very, very good. Hopefully, I'll see you at the next one, and you'll be just as burnt as uh, I am, peeling everywhere. Uh, My name is Young, if I haven't met you yet. I'm lead pastor here at New Life, and we're back into our series through 1 Corinthians uh, called United as One. And this section that we're in now is titled One in Body. And in this part of the letter, uh, Paul is addressing the problems with sexual immorality, uh, as you heard in the passage today. Uh, Greed, which you'll hear about next week, relationships within the church, all with a view to glorifying God with our bodies. So this is week one in our five-week series uh, through this section of 1 Corinthians, so follow along with me. Now today's sermon might be a little bit longer uh, than what you're used to from me, so I urge you to pay a little bit closer attention uh, and hear the word of God, Uh, try not to fall asleep. If you you fall asleep or if someone else falls asleep around you, uh, then feel free to kind of nudge them awake. Um, If that's me, you can come and nudge me awake as well. All right, let's pray together. Father, we long to hear your word, and we long to hear your word faithfully preached and faithfully received. We don't want uh, this thing to be just in one ear and out the other, uh, but we want to understand uh, what you're saying to us here, now, and today, God. We want to know what it means to us here at New Life, uh, this passage that we've just read, and we want to know how to be guided by you, by your Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't want to be people of Sundays, but we want to be people of every day, just seeking after you, seeking to glorify you, seeking to be transformed by your Holy Spirit. So would you be with us in the preaching of the word today, God, that we might faithfully receive the word that you have for us, that we might receive your Holy Spirit, a transforming power in us. Lord, change our hearts that we might be not only a moral people, but a people that seek to be more and more like your son, Jesus. We know that he's done the work for us, we know that he is our righteousness, and so we seek to be righteous as he is. Would you help us in this endeavor? Guide us, Lord, help us to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, this kind of experience that I'm about to describe about your family trying to avoid shame or saving face, you know. Maybe uh, you guys are a little bit too old now. You know, now that you're here at New Life, to experience this any longer. But maybe you have a memory, a distinct memory in your past of when you were a child pulling into the church car park. Maybe, you know, you have a family that is fighting like crazy in the car, just yelling at each other, just feeling very, you know, like, are we really doing this on the way to church? And then the moment they pull into the church car park. You know, and the deacons are, like, waving. They're all smiles. They're like, oh, hello. You know, it's all smiles, handshakes, holy kisses to the deacons. And then your parents are giving you the side eye, making sure that you don't say something about what was just happening in the car park and bring shame upon your family. Now, many of us are probably at least somewhat familiar with the honor-shame culture that goes on within uh, people of Asian backgrounds, usually seeing how we're in the same building as a huge Korean church, and many of us also are second generation Asians, or at least know an Asian person around us. We're at least Asian adjacent, I think. You know, in honor-shame culture, there's this idea that one's individual actions can bring shame upon their family. And so people hide things away, which isn't good. You know, that part isn't good. But there's clearly a principle at play here. There's clearly something happening that causes people to be ashamed about certain things. There's this awareness that one particular matter with one particular member of the family may do damage to the entire family. As a general overview for this entire section, for one in body, this is also the case. Whether it has to do with the sexual immorality that we're gonna look at today, whether it has to do with lawsuits between Christians, or the way that we think about relationships in general, Every individual's actions affect the way that the church is viewed by outsiders, which also affects the way that people receive what comes from within the church, our witness about Jesus Christ. So an example of this today is that you might often see opinions about the state of the church from those outside of the church. You will especially see this on the internet, on you know certain forums, or you know, on certain news articles, whatever it might be, YouTube comments, whatever. You'll see this because of the hypocrisy and the sin that happens within when it comes to cases of, for example, sexual, sexual abuse that has happened within the church, immorality that has happened in the church, leadership abuse, whatever it is that has happened within the church. And because of this, even before hearing anything, about the word of God, about Jesus, an opinion has been formed by the outsiders about the church and its message. The message is already tainted prior to it being even preached. The fact that there's so much sexual immorality happening inside the church is deplorable. It's disgusting, not only in the way that it mars the image bearers of God through the abuse, but that it also harms our witness about our perfect, beautiful, and holy God. Now, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he addresses this head on. This is what this passage is about. He tells the members of the church in Corinth, don't be arrogant. I am coming to you. Read with me, verses 18 to uh, 21 in chapter 4. Now, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant." For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, oftentimes, the shame upon the family comes because of shameless behavior or attitudes. In our passage today, Paul confronts the Corinthians. We saw in the last section, in One in Mind, how many of the church members were arrogant, believing themselves to be wise talking about their preference for this leader or that leader, creating division within the church. They've even scoffed at Paul's leadership and his lack of presence in comparison to other Christian leaders. And so here, Paul tells them, if they receive his instructions well, if they act on his instructions well, he will come to them with a spirit of gentleness. However, if they refuse, he will come wielding the rod of discipline so to speak. I would guess that some of us who were born before 1995 maybe, have experienced the rod of discipline from our parents, right? The choice is theirs. The choice is the Corinthians. One way or another, they're gonna face some sort of discipline and correction. The choice isn't between no discipline and some discipline. It's between harsh or gentle discipline. And either way, Paul gives them this warning and time to get their act together. And we soon find out why. Read with me chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? It's a kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles, among the non-believers. Sometimes we compare ourselves to all sorts of people just to make ourselves feel a little bit better about the sin that we engage in, but God's people are supposed to be the salt and light of the world, of the nations, not the other way around. We don't determine our morality by the people around us. We're defined by God. And so the Corinthians in this instance, they're not even worthy of comparing with other Christians, but instead to unbelieving Gentiles around them. Now when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it's a very blanket term. It's a flexible term referring to any prohibited sexual relations. The specific sin in this instance, in this passage, is incest. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. It's revolting, it's appalling to even think about, and worse still, Paul learns that the Corinthians are tolerating this man. They're condoning this ongoing sexual relationship between this man, a member of their church, and his stepmother, an unbeliever. We know that she's an unbeliever because she doesn't receive a rebuke like this man does from Paul, who says it's not his business to judge outsiders. Now oftentimes, we talk about the context, we try to figure things out from a historical viewpoint to see if there's any way, any possible way, to explain just what's going on with some semblance of sanity intact. Please, God, tell me that there's some reason for this in this passage. But let me be clear, these relationships were forbidden at this time in this culture as well. Just as they were forbidden in the Old Testament and in Jewish culture, In Roman society, although the culture was a lot looser when it came to their morals, when it came to, you know, outside of marriage sex, for example, adultery and prostitution weren't necessarily frowned upon for the men, but an incestuous relationship was met with shock and horror from the people. Oftentimes, they punished it by deporting the offenders to an island somewhere else away from them, just go away from us, basically, and die there. Don't be even around us, is what they were saying. So how did this happen in the church in Corinth then? What possible reason was there for him to enter into this relationship? Why? And why isn't the church doing anything about it? From the letter itself, there's not a great deal of evidence to try to figure out exactly why this might be, but there's a bunch of possibilities, and so here's what we do know. In first century Corinth, Civic marriage laws suggest that maybe the man entered into this relationship to either stop his stepmother from remarrying in the case that his father had passed away so that he could keep his father's inheritance if he had died. It had to do with keeping money in the family, keeping money for himself. Similarly, maybe it had to do with the dowry price that was paid by his father to his stepmother's family, again, if his father had passed away, and so he's trying to keep it for himself. So again, financially motivated. Beyond civic marriage laws, we also unfortunately cannot rule out the possibility of the man just plain being attracted to her. Uh, Unfortunately, we can't rule out that possibility. There's evidence that at this time, stepmothers were actually quite young as men remarried late in their years. Maybe that's not that different from us. Sometimes stepmothers were even younger than the children of the family that they were marrying into, You know, maybe the midlife crisis of the first century. So whatever the reason, incest was still at this time considered criminal. It fell under the domain of criminal law. When people prosecuted cases like this, it came under criminal law. In the Old Testament, criminal cases were to be judged by either the head of the community or by the gathered people of the community as a whole. In our instance, that would be either me or all of you together. And so Paul enacts this here too. He pronounces judgment himself as an authority figure, and then he also calls upon the church to actually put this in place. Carry out my judgment. There's a responsibility that the body of the church has regarding this one member's sin. This is what we're finding out here. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? He tells them, suggesting that they should be mourning as though this was their own sin that they're confessing. This isn't at a distance. This is within our own congregation, our own family. Instead of being prideful or complacent about the matter, grieve, cry over this sin. So what's Paul's solution? He says, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Read with me verses three to five. Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Remove him from the church is Paul's solution. Six times he says this throughout this passage. Where does he get this from? Incest is outlawed all throughout the Old Testament as well. And you can see this in places like Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and you can see that on screen there. Genesis 49, you don't have to turn there. Ezekiel 22, Deuteronomy, and so on and so forth. Specifically in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, there's this disciplinary penalty for the sin that's been committed In this case, not necessarily incest, but adultery, Paul, as a good Israelite, is saying, we need to refer back to the law that God has given us, the Torah that God has given us. We, like Israel, are the sanctified covenant community of God. And if this is the case, this is what we refer back to as well. Because of what Jesus did, we are sanctified or we're made holy. Holy. Because of what Jesus did, we're in the covenant. We've entered into an agreement with God. And because of what Jesus did, we are a community. We share responsibility together. Removing this man from the church is to happen when the Corinthians gather together with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now notice that the command that Paul gives is to the church, to the body, and not to the man himself. Throughout this passage, Paul addresses the body of the church as a whole. Okay, in our English translations, it says "you," but it's the plural "you all" in Greek. Okay, so he's rebuking them as a body. In verses two and four and six, sorry, he commands them to carry out the discipline when they're gathered together. In verse six, uh, sorry, again, verse four, he gives metaphors about cleansing as a communal image, telling them to be a new unleavened batch rather than a bunch of different lumps of dough. We gather from this that the church, the body, stands together and it also falls together. One person's triumph is our triumph as a body. One person's fall is our fall as a body as well. Why should this man's flesh be destroyed? Verses four to five, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and this is a frightening command. Paul was telling the church, excommunicate this man. Don't let him back into your gathering. Send him away from you. Send him out from the edification and the care of the church. Hand him over to Satan, the enemy of God's people. This is how serious the sin is. Exclude him completely from God's community of faith. This is the last act of grace that this church can possibly offer this man. God's purposes are higher than all, and so he graciously works even through what we don't understand. In our estimation, maybe handing over to Satan in this instance seems very cruel. Can we not try to rehabilitate this man? But no, God's purposes are higher. Even Satan is under God's sovereignty. And it's Paul's hope that Satan's torment of this man will ironically rehabilitate him. That even as his flesh suffers and is destroyed, his spirit might be saved. Now, as Paul gives this command, he's astonished at the inaction on the Corinthians' part. Up until this point, the Corinthians haven't been doing anything. This inaction is guilt. It's sin. And it's clear that their pride has resulted in their blindness to sin, both the man's and their own as well. Verses 6 to 8, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I've got a weak stomach, so this picture makes me feel a little bit sick. Okay. But here's the theological reasoning for why this man should be removed. Back a couple of chapters in First Corinthians 3, Paul pointed out in verses 16 to 17, "You yourselves, you Corinthians, yourselves, are God's temple, and the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys this temple, God will destroy him. for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are." But this is the reasoning cleansing the temple means it's time to celebrate the passover or the festival of unleavened bread king hezekiah did this in second chronicles 29 to 30 again you don't have to turn to these these uh, passages he called for a celebration of the passover after cleansing the temple of idolatry king Josiah did the same thing he called for a celebration of the passover after removing the idols from the temple that's recorded in that second line there 2 chronicles 35 and second kings 23 Ezra 6 has the completion and dedication of the temple, followed by a celebration of the Passover, and even in the Gospels, we see this as well, the cleansing of the temple by Jesus connected to the Passover. As in the historical temple, for us, what we can see is the Corinthian church is now the temple of God because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, This new identity demands that we live up to the calling as the temple of God. They need to be who they really are. Their identity together should be changing their behavior. It doesn't make sense for them to return back to their old ways. So the Corinthians really ought to be cleansing the house of God. They should be removing the incestuous man from their church, and they should become a new unleavened batch in celebration of the Passover. Failure to remove this man will be like keeping the old leaven. I don't know if you've ever made your own bread before. If you've ever made your own bread before, you might know that leaven is the raising agent, it's typically yeast in today's day, that makes the bread rise. Oftentimes it comes from a small portion of that previous week's batch of bread. So they keep it so that it will raise again. But the longer you keep the leaven, slowly the risk of infection rises. For the Israelites, we know from Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 20 that all of the yeast, all of the leaven each year is to be cleansed and removed from their homes and their temples once a year. And the unleavened bread from the Passover is going to provide them with new yeast or leaven to start the process of making new bread for the next year. Like this, this one man, even though he's just a small part of the body of the church, the evil sin that he partakes in and has allowed himself to be consumed by can slowly but surely infect the whole community if it's not dealt with. To keep this man, to keep this leaven, will be like trying to salvage moldy bread. I don't know if you guys have done this. Usually it's... Men like me that do this. My wife, Bora, she has an especially sensitive nose. She smells things that I'm convinced aren't there. But there have been times where she smelled mold in a loaf of bread where I just can't see it. I just can't see it. I would attempt to eat it anyway. Just try to cut out where she's saying the mold is. And she would say, don't do that. Are you crazy? But now I know that apparently the mold can spread microscopic roots that I can't see through the pores of the bread. It will be like this. For the Corinthians to continue to keep this evil person among them, their claims to be the holy temple of God ends up becoming a lie and a farce to unbelievers around them. How can they trust anything that they're saying when they commit such grave sins? The sad fact of the matter is, this could probably have been all avoided, Verses 9 to, 9 to 11 read, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This is a letter before 1 Corinthians. I did not mean that immoral people of this world are the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Now, we find out that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul's ever written to the Corinthians. There's a prequel, okay? So he's already written a letter to the Corinthians prior to this letter that we're currently reading, and in it, he had taught them, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Either the Corinthians had misunderstood Paul's teaching here, or maybe they just plain disagreed with it because they don't think he's much of a teacher at all. Remember how prideful they are. Maybe they believed that Paul was telling them, hey, withdraw completely from the world. Don't associate with all immoral people, which would seem very impractical. How could they live in a city like Corinth and not interact with any immoral people? Not only that, but it would nullify the Great Commission as well. Paul clarifies for them very patiently in verses 10 to 11, his teaching didn't have to do with the continuing association with outsiders go ahead and do that. He tells them plainly, he's not telling the Corinthians to not associate with the immoral, the greedy, the swindlers, or the idolaters of this world, the unbelievers that do these things. He's telling them, do not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and sister, and yet is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, verbally abusive, or a drunkard, or a swindler. To Paul, it's a given that Christians ought to be in this world because it's our mission to preach the good news to unbelievers that they might come to know Jesus Christ. It's those who claim to be Christians that he takes umbrage with. These Christians that live in these sins, they should not be associated with. They shouldn't take part in the communion and in eating together with the church gatherings. Why? Why shouldn't they take part? Removing the evil person in this way means removing their means to be a part of the gatherings of the body of Christ. It's not like Sydney today where you can just go down the road to a different church, okay? Just because you leave one church in, you know, there's one in every suburb now, right? The church in Corinth is the only option. The man has brought shame upon the family of God with his lifestyle And this act of removing him is supposed to bring shame upon the man. Shame and honor, once again, are hugely important in the time and culture of Corinth, just as it is to Asians today, I guess. At this time, in their Roman world, honor was generally given to men by giving them gifts, arranging marriages for them, trading property with them, and inviting them to meals. Now, by contrast, shame was usually reserved for the lower class, the lesser members of society. You don't shame people above your station. Maybe this gives us a little bit of insight into who this man really is. Maybe he had a higher social standing. Maybe he had given significant amounts financially to the church, and the church felt they couldn't survive without him. This might explain why the Corinthians are a little bit reluctant to discipline this man. But God doesn't play favorites. Paul doesn't either. Paul states that no matter who this is, this man ought to be removed. Read me, verses 12 to 13. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person among you, So Paul asks two rhetorical questions at the end of today's passage, and these two questions provide the explanation for why the church is responsible for the judgment of those on the inside. First, it's not the church's responsibility to judge outsiders, to police their morality, to discipline them. Please don't do this. That's God's job. We're not in charge of the outside. Does this make sense? I don't... Okay, now it's the church's responsibility to love and edify their members, to raise up, to disciple, to discipline those on the inside. And Paul finishes by reiterating his judgment. Indeed, this heavy command of the Bible, remove the evil person from among you. The person has to be removed for three main reasons. He broke covenant with God, There's guilt by association for the church where he remains, and because the community is a temple of the Holy Spirit. For the sake of the church, he should be expelled. In fact, a fourth reason for this removal is that it's for his own sake that he's sent away, because the destruction of the flesh, once again, might result in remorseful repentance. His spirit might be saved. Now, let's finish by talking about what church discipline looks like in modern times. There's two ends of the spectrum that we often see, okay? Maybe we don't see this particular, this specific case in today's day and age. Hopefully, we don't. But there's two ends of the spectrum that I see. It might be the complete lack of church discipline on one end, or it might be the abuse of church discipline on the other. Both of these result in a lot of unnecessary hurt for the people of the church. There's the breakdown of the gospel message for the people on the outside either way. What we have to do with this passage and this teaching is to contextualize it a little bit. Not only to learn about it in its own context, its own historic and theological context, but also to apply it to our own people's context in a contextual way. This means that we recognize that every person grows in holiness at different rates and in different ways. It begs the question, can we now be as patient as our Lord Jesus was with us. Can we do the same for our brothers and sisters? Remember, our passage today, and others like it, call for removal or excommunication as the final resort, as the last resort to be employed in the most serious cases of sin, where the person who claims to be a Christian lives a life of open rebellion against God, and removal of this person is not to be used as a weapon but rather with the goal of restoration can we receive this teaching and seek to not only disciple and to discipline but to restore lovingly to seek to grow in accountability with one another let's pray together that this takes place in our church new life Father, you have great discipline for the one that you love. For the one that you discipline is the one that you call your child. We acknowledge this verbally, even though in our hearts we struggle to internalize it, we struggle to accept it. Sometimes in our hearts we long for the freedom to do whatever we want, even if that results in our harm and in the harm of our family. But we ask, Lord, that you would just give us the courage to receive your discipline well. That we might be shaped more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. That we might bring honor to your family rather than shame. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us a nuanced understanding of this passage. That you would just give us grace, that we might receive your message well that we might be able to give grace to those around us as well make us into a gracious and loving people for the sake of our brothers and sisters here and for the outsiders that we long to call our brothers and sisters as well we want to be the salt and light to the world we want to be a fragrant offering so help us lord not to be tolerant of sin Whether it's in our own bodies or in the people around us, may we lovingly rebuke, hold accountable, discipline, and disciple. May we be open to correction. May we do all things out of love, out of seeking restoration. Strengthen our church, Lord. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.